Good afternoon. This is John, Dr. John Hunt for Let's Talk Animals from Aardvarks to Zebras. We're here every fourth Thursday at four o'clock. This is a taped show again, so my listeners uh, cannot call in uh, this time. Hopefully in the future we'll be able to. Also, I, always, I like to remind everyone about my Sunday morning show, Pet Sounds, at 7.30 in the morning. Uh, that's uh, pre-recorded, but it uh, covers all sorts of topics of interest I think you'd be interested in. Today, this is, this, I think this is the first time I've done this in the four years I've done uh, Let's Talk Animals. I've had a guest two months in a row, so she gets a little award. Uh, Dr. Catherine Pollock is here. She was a veterinarian from... She practices in Thailand. She's from Chicago, which is my hometown. So we have this connection. And we talked last month about uh, exporting animals from Southeast Asia into the United States and how the attitudes of pets in Southeast Asia differ from uh, our attitudes and how that affects the exporting. But she has a, a special training in animal shelter medicine, which I never heard of when I was in school, which was back in the old days. And that struck uh, a little interest chord in me and thought maybe we have her back and talk about animal shelters in general and animal shelter medicine. Good morning, Catherine. How are you today? I'm good. Thank good you afternoon, for I should me. Say. Sorry. Yeah, good afternoon. No, it's, it's not my time, your morning, um, right. but regardless, it's great to, it's great to be back. Good. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I know you're very busy and you have all sorts of things going on over there. I appreciate your time. Sure thing. So, uh, again, maybe we should start with um, animal shelter medicine, what, what it is, because that's what you're trained in. And then from there, we can uh, branch off into shelter and then come back to the medicine part specifics later. So what exactly... Uh, is animal shelter medicine as a veterinarian? How are the veterinarian's role seems to be changing in this area? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's really exciting time. So I'm super excited to talk about this topic. Um, you know, shelter medicine, it really includes all areas of veterinary practice that is, you know, critical for the care and management of homeless animals and animals at risk for homelessness. And Shelter medicine is really complex because it involves infectious disease control. It involves population management. You know, whereas your private practitioner, you know, how many clients might they have in a day, in a busy day? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure, maybe 10 to 15, um, maybe more, maybe less. You know, but in a shelter situation, you might have 200, you know, to 300 patients in a day that you need to take care of. But it's also about, you know, finding innovative ways to find animals' homes, um, keeping them behaviorally healthy. Um, it can also be community-based. It could be about uh, responding to hoarding cases or protecting public health. You might have bite cases or potential rabies cases. And so, you know, and, and that doesn't even include spay-neuter surgery as well. You know, we need to be experts in, in providing surgical services. So it's really comprehensive. And the field of shelter medicine has really evolved into a specialty in and of its own you know, over the last 10 years or so. You mentioned um, community with regard to hoarding and legal aspects, because hoarding, we, I did have a, uh, a client who was a hoarder, which, uh, as I understand it, is a, a sus obsessive compulsive behavior. But the legal entanglement to deal with that was uh, almost insurmountable. So do you have training in legal, uh, the legal aspect of all this? So certainly legal and regulatory policy, you know, is certainly part of specialty level training for shelter medicine, because we really can't have a community-based impact on pet homelessness and the response to things like this, like hoarding, um, like legal stray holding periods without, you know, without an attention to policy, you know, and regulatory matters. I mean, hoarding is an interesting one too, because, I mean, as you mentioned, you know, it's really a complex issue and many uh, local shelters, you know, the number of animals and the severity of the cases just exceeds their capacity. And so many times they have to get, you know, a larger like national level 
agency. I mean, some of these hoarding cases that I saw when we were in Florida were 700, 800 cats. Um, and the issue is the shelter, you know, these cases take a long time in court, right? Some of them take up to a year until the shelter gets like legal ownership of these animals. And so you're talking about sheltering 700 very sick cats <laughs> for a year. And so you can imagine, you know, the drain uh, on resources that that takes. Even 50 cats for a small town. I mean, this, this, in my case, it, it wasn't much more than 50, 60 cats. And that's a lot. Oh, absolutely. And it's not just, you know, these aren't like very friendly. I mean, some of them are friendly, but, you know, very well taken pampered house cats. <laughs> These cats have, you know, some behavioral issues, they're fearful, they have, you know, a myriad of, of infectious diseases that need to be treated. So really challenging. And do you have to go to court, for instance, going and, and not, yeah, I mean, some shelter veterinarians do go to court. Um, some of them have specialty level training in forensic science because they're asked to testify, you know, they might be asked to do the animal equivalent of an autopsy, right? And then they have to prove that there is neglect. I mean, for example, with these hoarding cats, right? Um, you know, the intake exam for each cat is really about evidence collection. It's about doing a good forensic exam where you're getting photos, um, you're getting, I mean, even hair mats, you know, keeping those as evidence um, to then go to court. So yeah, absolutely. Forensics is another part of this really wide toolkit, you know, that shelter veterinarians need to have. And also you mentioned um, behavior. So you must have a lot of behavior training because that's huge in successful uh, um, placement of animals. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Behavior is a huge component. And when we think of keeping an animal healthy in a shelter, you know, it's, I often think of it as split into, you know, two you know, components. One is certainly the physical health of the animal. So how do we keep it healthy, you know, vaccinated, um, spay neutered, all of that. But then also, how do we keep it behaviorally healthy? You know, animals, you know, shelters generally aren't set up for animals just to thrive behaviorally, right? And we see this particularly with cats. Like if you go to a, you know, a traditional municipal shelter, I mean, particularly, you know, 10 years ago, you know, cages for cats, you know, housing for cats is stainless steel microwave size cages. And so for like some a, reason, whoever like designed it, think, yeah, the think that, okay, yeah, cat is really going to thrive in this environment, right? And so then what happens is they get sick, they get up for respiratory infection. And so then it's a, you know, a vicious cycle. So yeah, um, infectious disease and behavioral health are both very important components. Just, of course, I'm going off on a little tangent, but uh, I had a, a, a dead of pet sounds on food guarding and how that develops in the shelters and how that transfers into the new home. And a lot of, a lot of um, people bring their animals home be, back from their home because of aggressiveness over food. So this is just an example of how you need to address that, I imagine. Yeah. I mean, you know, and there's entire, you know, behavior assessment protocols, you know, once an animal gets to a shelter to try to assess the best that a shelter can you know, are there food guarding behaviors? Are there any, you know, bite tendencies? Um, you know, and then, you know, more, more advanced shelters might have a behavioral department. You know, I think of the shelter that I work with in Denver, which is a large, um, you know, privately operated shelter that took in, you know, 20, 25,000 animals a year, had an entire behavior department, entire behavior team, you know, to try to work with these animals. So yeah, but it depends on the resources. You know, your small town shelter isn't going to have the resources, right, um, to do that. And so sometimes there's some difficult decisions that need to be made. And that seems, is that the majority of the shelters in the United States, these small town, you know, like Bucksport uh, has, a, has a small animal shelter? Is that uh, pretty much the majority? Yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, there's a good mix of municipal versus privately owned, right? So your SPCAs, your humane societies, um, you know, it, it really varies across the board. Like some of them might be very large, you know, the Pennsylvania, you know, SPCA in Philadelphia, that's a large urban intake shelter, Miami-Dade Animal Services. You know, they used to have an intake of you know, 30, 40,000 animals a year. So just huge. Um, whereas your private shelters are generally going to be smaller. They're going to be limited admission. 
They're going to pick and choose generally which animals they take in. Whereas you, your municipal shelters are generally legally mandated to take everything in. And it depends on which contracts they have city contracts for. Um, but that's really challenging, right? When you can't control like the number of animals coming through your doors, um, you know, it, it can be very overwhelming. And that is an important point for uh, listeners to understand is that they may think that all shelters have to accept all animals. And if they come across a shelter, they don't realize it's privately owned and they can pick and choose. The general public may get a little bit perturbed at that and think that they, you know, you can't do that. So it's important to know that there are private shelters as well as public. Yeah, absolutely. So how do shelters, I mean, animal shelters, that's kind of a new term last 20 years or so before it was what the dog pound, right? Yeah. So what, what kind of, how, what was it like before historically and how's it, how and why has it developed into what they call animal shelters? Yeah. I mean, it's really been such an interesting transition on how shelters have really redefined their role. I'd say really since the 1990s. And I think, you know, when we think of shelters back then, it was more, you know, dog pounds, Dogs, you know, were lucky to leave alive, you know, very few would actually find their owners if they were lost. Um, and it was generally a sad and depressing place. I think if you just conjured up the idea of what a dog pound is. But what we're seeing now is this, this real transition from dog pound to rehoming center or community center. I'm not sure that's like the best way to put it. Um, But what we're really seeing is higher and higher community expectations, you know, that shelters find as many homes, you know, for as many animals as possible. There's really high community expectations, which this is another point we can talk about uh, later. But shelters are really taking a more comprehensive role in really taking the lead in controlling pet population. So we see a lot of programs run out of shelters, you know, trap neuter return for cats or maybe subsidized spay neuter for the public. Um, We're seeing, you know, more and more focus on behavior, offering training classes to the public, you know, to make sure animals stay in their homes. Um, And I think, you know, there's just also really been this community transition as well um, in terms of you know shifting cultural attitudes that have helped limit euthanasia and really promoted you know shelters as a place to get a healthy dog or cat. You mentioned euthanasia, uh, the new kind of I mean the different kinds of shelters. There's the regular shelter, uh, there's rescue and fostering, which we can talk about later, and, and sanctuaries, which we can talk about later. But I want to get kind of focus on the no kill. No kill shelter is is a relative well relatively to me because time <laughs> you know, time sh- shrinks in my yeah. mind. Uh, no no kill kind of came out when I was practicing in the '90s, I think, and now that's a very common term. in no kill shelter. Uh, can you explain how that came about and what they really are? Because there may be some misconceptions of what a no kill is. Yeah, I think no kill means different things to different people. And I think on a fundamental level, no kill sounds great, right? It sounds like we're not euthanizing, you know, healthy, treatable animals. Um, And many times cities or municipalities will set targets. Usually it's 90%. So that means nine out of every 10 animals that comes in the door, you know, will leave alive and in a happy, healthy home. Um, the issue, however, with no kill, I mean, there, there's a few issues, you know, I think primarily the main issue is that it, it, it can be very difficult, right? For these shelters that we just mentioned that let's say, for instance, are open admission, right? So they have to legally, man, they're mandated to take every animal, but there's only a limited number of adopters, right? And so Sometimes what we see at these kind of no-kill facilities is that um, the the population of animals can become very high. And when the population of animals becomes very high in the building, you know, there's there's a breakdown in terms of animal health. Again, because animals tend to get sick, the facilities become crowded. Um, the staff, you know, can't take care of all the animals. So it leaves a high staff turnover and a breakdown of, of the whole system. And so we just have to be careful sometimes when we talk about no kill, because sometimes these facilities, you know, while it's certainly a noble cause, um, 
you know, for some, for those of us in the sheltering industry, and particularly as of late, it, it's um, sometimes conjures up uh, images of, of overcrowding and maybe inhumane practices. Well, I think in the public it conjures up, you kind of alluded to in the very beginning, and it's kind of uh, mistaken, is that no kill is, they just have this image of any animal that goes in will not be killed. And it's going to stay there. It has to, you know, if it has to, it's going to stay there forever. And uh, they don't have to worry about it. But in truth, as I, and correct me if I'm wrong, even in a no kill, if there's a sick, uh, an animal that's too sick to be adopted out or very, very old, they may actually be euthanized. Is that, is that mistaken? Or that's is that correct. And, and a lot of it comes down to how shelters calculate metrics. Because there are different ways to, you know, let's say we define no kill as 90% of, you know, animals that are treatable or healthy leave the doors. But what happens when an animal becomes sick? Because animals are staying too long, right? We know that for every day an animal stays in a shelter, it's exponentially more likely to get an infectious disease, usually respiratory illness. It's hard. Like it's hard taking care of hundreds of animals that are in not ideal, um, you know, we try to make shelters as nice as we can, but it's not an ideal situation, keeping a dog in a kennel and a cat in a cage. Um, and so, you know, animals are, are predisposed to getting infectious disease, but then that can also, you know, alter the way that the statistics are reported, right? Because that animal had entered healthy, but then it got sick while it was in the shelter's care. Okay. Well then maybe it gets euthanized, but it still looks like no kill um, because that animal then is not categorized as, you know, uh, healthy. And, no kill you know, healthy animals. Yeah. And and it also depends on what the denominator is and how we're calculating live release. Um, Sometimes when shelters accumulate a large number of animals, that isn't necessarily accounted for in the way that the live release rate is calculated. And so you also just have to kind of take these broad based, um, you know, uh, terms, you know, with, with a grain of salt. And so statistically from what I did some research is, half or 50% of the animals taken in the shelters uh, are their owners are found or they're adopted out. That's only 50%. So do our no kill shelters included in that statistic? Since we're talking numbers. And matrix, yeah, it's a I good mean, question. Is this, I'm a, not is this sure. a shell game? Yeah, it's, I don't know if it's that, um, you know, I think, you know, the issue is that there's no national agency, right. That that's looking at, you know, really um, amalgamating or compiling all of the data, right? And so there are some nationwide initiatives to get shelters on board to be able to be more transparent um, in in the collection of shelter data and how it's reported. Um, but you know, there's still some way to go. But but the good news is, like, the really great news is that you know, shelter euthanasia has dropped dramatically. You know, particularly in recent years. You know, you know, think back to, you know, in the 2000s, we were seeing, you know, 6.3 million companion animals on average entering shelters. Um, and, you know, the euthanasia rate was was incredibly high, unacceptably high. Um, and, it, you know, it was in the millions. Um, but now we think that there's about, you know, 300,000 dogs and, and about half a million cats that are still being euthanized. And that's still, you know, way too high. But the numbers have dropped, I mean, dramatically. This is Let's Talk Animals. Dr. John Hunt, your host. We're talking to Dr. Catherine Pollock of Thailand. She has special training in animal shelter medicines. We're talking about animal shelters, types of animal shelters, and what they are and how they're reflecting our views on animals. Uh, this is WERU in East Orland, Maine. The, um, the other... So the thing about the shelters, you mentioned <clears throat> there's no national uh, agency. There's some big private ones like ASPCA and that sort of thing. So this, this is relegated not, not only to the, not really the statewide, it's, it's local communities, right? It's like the town of, you know, the town of Bucksport, the town of Orland. So local politics and funding comes from these little towns. So the town can't go to the state or the federal government and ask for money. Or can they for a shelter? 
Yeah, it, it depends on the state. I mean, so in the U.S., there is no government-run organization that provides oversight or regulation of various shelters on a national basis. However, many individual states regulate shelters within their jurisdiction, um, but that depends on the state. So it, it depends. We can say, you know, across the board, generally, you know, shelters, just because you mentioned, you know, the funding issue are, are generally under underfunded, um, yes. at least municipally. Yeah. Uh, tragically and consistently. Uh, that's one of the one of the budget items, just from my own personal experience as a veterinarian in a small town, that's one of the budget items that they always cut or cut down uh, and and the animal control officers who are usually in charge of the animal shelters are underpaid. It's usually a second job. Um, I applaud all the animal control officers in my, in this in the area of Bucksport, they're just uh, very dedicated and, and people don't give them enough credit and they actually get slammed. Um, totally. Yeah. And I, I, you know, it kind of at least speaks to this broader issue of, you know, very high community expectations you know, that shelters are rescuing every animal and the animal control officers are kind of saving every cat. Uh, and then the animals are going to go to the shelter. They're going to stay healthy and they're going to find an amazing home. Like that's a community expectation. And in many ways we want that. But on the other hand, we have to look at the resources with which these facilities are provided. You know, many of which, you know, didn't. And at least, you know, things are certainly changing. But, you know, back, you know, five, 10 years ago, they didn't have the budget to hire a full-time vet. Like, you have a vet at, you know, your little shelter. They might have a contract with a local practitioner. Um, you know, but we recognize now that, you know, veterinary expertise is so needed to, you know, keep these animals healthy and to, again, fulfill community expectations. And in, in my day, the animal control officer would bring in a, the dog or cat that they just picked up and I'll check them out. And most of the time I didn't charge uh, for the physical. If I had to get a vaccine, it'd be at cost. So yeah. I was I was subsidizing that when I didn't mind. I had no problem with that. Uh, but one time um, I, I went over to the animal shelter and found a lot of things in need, which we maybe we can talk about later. And I went to the town council meeting. And I, I was put on the agenda, but I didn't tell the town council what I was there for. And I kind of, I reported the animal shelter was not good. We need to improve it. And, and they, they slammed me publicly. And actually the newspaper came out and defended me because they just, they got blindsided politically. So now all of a sudden we got this political thing going on. Totally. Uh, good ending the story yeah. is, is I was assigned to a little committee and we got, you know, we got the corrections for the animal shelter, but the politics and the money are all swirling around these poor little animals that need help. Well, that's exactly it. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's the animals that end up losing out. Right. But you're right. These, you know, battles get extremely political. Um, yeah, there's definitely a lot of high turnover among, you know, executive directors in, in the shelter, you know, sheltering community. So, yeah, it's um, it's really challenging for sure. So we'll get into more shelters in a minute, but I just want to stick to the types of shelters. There's your standard shelter, your no-kill shelter. Um, and if there's more that I don't mention, please. But there's the rescue um, fostering. How is that? That has really become very popular. How, how did that come oh, yeah. about? And how and is I, that involved with shelters? Yeah, I mean... It's funny how, you know, foster and, and smaller rescue groups have really like been leading the charge in, in community life saving. I mean, in the past, I think there used to be more of a, a tenuous, like a, a ten relationship sometimes between these larger shelters and these local, you know, rescue groups, which are really passionate, um, you know, but they would always be publishing online, um, you know, the euthanasia list from the shelter, and then they'd want to, you know, rescue the dogs, but, you know, the shelters have policies, they have holding times. Um, so we've actually really encouraged, uh, you know, in the shelter medicine community for these relationships to be strengthened, because there is so much opportunity there, right? You have these rescue groups that are like jumping at the bit to rescue these animals, like let them have the animals, yeah. <laughs> like when there's all this red tape, right? Like, no, it's a holding period. And no, um, we didn't do the behavior around this and that. And so, yeah, there's always a middle ground, right? You also, you don't want to send animals out of the building that maybe are unsafe. So there's definitely, you know, some caution, but what we've found is, you know, 
when we've seen facilities that have this very fruitful partnership with, you know, the rescue community and the rescue groups, it's, it's incredible, right? Like shelters will sometimes when they um, get animals into the shelter system and, you know, they're putting them on the online database, you know, you have a beagle, you're calling Beagle Rescue of Tallahassee, right? Like you're, <laughs> you know, you're, um, you know, getting these dogs, um, you know, out via email and social media and you're contacting the rescue groups and there's so many breed specific rescue groups. It's really incredible. So um, I would say it's really kind of the next level of life saving um, when, when the partnerships work well. Yeah. Well, they, and the rescue depend on the fostering. My own dog, Ben was a, was a rescue uh, don't. Right. And they, you're talking about behavior and screening. These rescue people screen, screen their animals thoroughly and they screen the fostering people and, and they bring them in. The fostering parents come in for medical checks. So they get, they, it's an extension, a good extension. It's, oh, totally. And it's really, you know, become more professionalized, right? Like I mm. think too, I mean, you still have some smaller like rogue rescue groups, but the rescue community in general has become really professionalized. And so that's really incredible too. And I mean, that's one of the main differences between, you know, the smaller rescue group and more of the brick and mortar shelter is often the rescue group is more of a network of foster homes. You know, they might have a, a small facility where animals are kept like temporarily or in quarantine before they go to foster homes, but they really do rely on a wide network of foster homes for their life-saving. And many of these foster homes become foster failures, right? Which is what we love. Like they just don't give the animal back. Um, or there's also foster to adopt programs where, you know, the foster home takes the responsibility to find these animals homes, which is great as well. So there's so many different yeah, models. Positive thing. And then one last kind of, of animal shelter is a sanctuary. And our sanctuaries, uh, eyebrows go off. What's what's the story with that? Well, definition uh, of sanctuaries know. is that they they live a life. They they stay there permanently, usually, and it can include wildlife and exotics. So, yeah. what's the story with sanctuaries with regard to animal shelters? Well, you know, just just as you know, with municipal shelters and private shelters, there are great sanctuaries, and then there's ones that are not so great. And I think, you know, with sanctuaries, one of the challenges, as you mentioned, is by definition, this is long-term care. Many of the animals will live their entire lives at these facilities. Um, and, and yeah, they do have a propensity to become overcrowded. Sometimes the, you know, the medical care is not the best. And so... Yeah, I think I, by nature, I, I cringe a bit when I hear the word sanctuary, just because in my experience, yeah, I mean, the animal care is not ideal, but that's not to say, you know, there are some great sanctuaries. And I think, unfortunately, the, the bad ones have given the other ones a, a bad rap. Um, but some of these hoarding cases, like these cat, cat cases that I was just telling you about in the beginning, like these are the these are called sanctuaries. Um, oh, they are? Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Oh. These are some pretty notorious cat hoarding cases, um, and they were termed sanctuaries. Yeah. Jeez. Well, you, you probably knew about the Barnum and Bailey Elephant Sanctuary, that was turned out to yeah. be awful, and they've moved them over up into Tallahassee or Jacksonville area with a, a really nice sanctuary. Yeah. Uh, that actually had uh, land and stuff for the for the elephants. I think, you know, sanctuaries can be great when they're run well and they're properly funded. I think what happens is when you get just well-intentioned individuals that just want to help animals, they don't necessarily have the training or expertise in how to do it. And, you know, they often will take animals that, you know, they perceive as unadoptable or um, they have chronic medical issues. Um, but those animals need a lot of care, right? You know, they, I'm thinking of incontinent animals or paralyzed dogs, Um and so you really have to have an appropriate budget, um, you know, and expertise to, to provide appropriate care for those animals. And that's where I think there's a struggle. Are there any other kind of animal shelter, rescue, sanctuary types of organizations that I didn't mention? Or is there? I mean, I think those are the, the, the main ones that I think of, you know, I think of the small rescue groups, um, you know, we have the sanctuaries, which are longer term housing, you know, municipal shelters, and then privately owned shelters. So I think we've covered, yeah, the main so, categories. So uh, the people who run it, 
I'm, I'm going to talk about the small town. The, the the head of it is usually the animal control officer. And then to maintain these shelters, because they have to be cared for, and we can talk about specific care later, uh, is volunteers. That the town is not going to hire anybody. So I have two questions. Is How does this volunteerism play? And if you're a veterinarian in animal shelter medicine, how do you uh, get paid? How do you make a living? How do you make a living as an animal shelter yeah, veterinarian? I wish I knew. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you're poor, over in Thailand. Poor career. Yeah, poor career. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's a great question. Yeah, there, there definitely is, in some cases, a reliance on volunteers. Again, I'd say, though, the field has really professionalized to where in some shelters, this isn't so much the small town shelters, but in some facilities, you have a very complex volunteer network and volunteer training programs really? and volunteers of different training levels are wearing different colored t-shirts and are allowed to do different things with different dogs on different days. It's really incredible. Wow. Um, and then you have, you know, kind of the, the director of unpaid staff, which is like the volunteer coordinator. Right. And so you can see, yeah, these very kind of well-organized volunteer programs and, and not every you know shelter has that, you know, the smaller budgets, um, there is this reliance on volunteers and that can be really challenging. I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, untrained volunteers can be a lot of work and can cause a lot of issues for shelters. They just have to, volunteers can be amazing, but they have to be trained appropriately and, and given, you know, put in a, a situation where they can thrive and, and help the animals and help the facility. And in terms of, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, in terms of? I was going to say, in terms of the the financial aspect of it, particularly from a veterinary perspective, I think, you know, over the years, shelters have really started to understand, like, why this veterinary partnership and relationship and really a veterinary at the shelter is so critical, right? And it makes sense, I think, also from a financial perspective, if you're having to outsource all your spay neuter work, all your vaccines, you know, having someone in-house can be so valuable, Um you know, back in the day, though, this wasn't a sexy job. Like people <laughs> didn't necessarily veterinarians, like they would much rather go into private practice than work at the city pound. Right. <laughs> um, but things have changed. I mean, I think this is what's really incredible with this advent of shelter medicine as a boarded specialty of veterinary medicine, which now it is. So now, you know, if you graduate and you want to be a specialist, right, just like you could be an orthopedic surgeon or you could be a cardiologist, you can now be a boarded specialist in shelter medicine. Doesn't pay like it would, like it would if you were an orthopedic surgeon, which is, it depends. Maybe we'll who hires you? Who hires yeah. you? This is a good question. Yeah. <laughs> so, so. You could be, let's say, an ED. You could be, a, you know, executive director at a shelter. So if you were the ED at the Humane Society of Silicon Valley, you're going to make decent money. And I think what's what's really interesting is that you know the the salaries are like really getting great for shelter veterinarians to the point where it is rivaling private practice salaries, particularly for new grads, even spay neuter vets that just do spay neuter surgery. There's such a demand for it and they can do such volume in a day. The salaries are really good. And so, um, like I'm shocked when I searched, you know, the kind of sheltervet.org career board, I am shocked at the salaries. Um, and there's such a veterinary need, I think in the U S as well. And certainly in shelters, the shelters has, haven't been spared from that. So yeah, it's, it's actually, um, it's interesting how this has evolved. We must truly love your job in Thailand. If you saw the salaries in the United States, you're saying, hmm. What? So your, your, your true love of your job over there is, I Yeah, commend. well, you know, um, we'll see. <laughs> so when you, when a, a veterinarian like myself or a trained veterinarian walks into a, uh, an animal shelter, what are you what are you looking for? What kind of things? Because if someone, if some one of our listeners walks into a shelter, I mean there's certain things, first of all, there's probably certain things you just kind of feel is wrong. But the kinds of things that you need to look for in a, a shelter, uh, what would they what would they be? Oh gosh. Yeah, I mean so many, right? I think one, you know, and this is something that we really preach to, to shelters is that 
they are really parts of the community, right? And they're not so much of a policing agency uh, as they are, point. you know, one that, you know, collaborates and finds solutions and works with members of the community to find good homes for, for pets. And we know that might not be the perfect home for every pet, right? It might not be the Cadillac, but it could be the Toyota. I don't know. Is that a, um, be careful. You know, it, it doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't have to be. You know, the greatest home, right? Um, it's particularly in communities where there's still animals being euthanized, right? Like we just don't have that luxury to keep that cat until we find it. You know, this home that may or may not even exist. So we recognize that shelters need to be more collaborative with the community and not looking for reasons why people should be rejected. I mean, so many stories of people who, you know, might work a full-time job, um, you know, that might not be, again, like they might not tick all the boxes um, for like the perfect adopter, but that doesn't mean that they're not worthy of adopting a dog. So I would say what I would look for is, you know, a shelter that, you know, just has, it has a positive energy about it that has working hours that, you know, work for me, you know, particularly as a working individual during nine to five, I think this is one issue where we see shelters with very limited hours that like, you know, you're not helping lost pets be reunited with their owners if owners, you know, are working during the times that you're open. So maybe having extended hours on the weekend. Um, and I think also getting a sense for, you know, the animals there are, are, is there behavioral information available on the animals? Do the animals look healthy? You know, can they communicate what the animal's history is? Um, you know, so I think those are all just generally things to look for, um, you know, at least initially. Well, location too. Most animal sh uh, shelters are in, in Bucksport and, and I'm not being casting any disparaging remarks. I'm just saying the facts is behind the the recycling center. The dump. The yeah. dump. It's almost yeah. always near the dump. It's always yeah. near the yeah. So that's that's not uncommon. Okay. Yeah. And that's not and a so, very good know, place. It's not. No, it's not. And I think you know we're seeing a lot of communities where they are doing your know, capital campaigns. And again, this is where shelter medicine is really exciting because there is definitely a change where you know I remember doing shelter consultation in Waco, Texas, very high euthanasia rate sub-ideal location of this facility. I mean, it was just pretty terrible all around uh, for the animals and for the staff. Um, huge capital campaign, $5 million new shelter, just turn things around. Veterinarian full-time on staff, um, live release right now, of, you know, around 90%, just incredible. Um, but yeah, you're right. Um, but it's hard, right? Because that's generally where the municipal buildings are in, in the city. Um, and so you also don't want to yeah, I mean, it's out of the way and it's not really conducive to, to adoptions, for sure. How about the facility itself? If you're, uh, you're, you want to adopt a dog and you go into an animal shelter, your hometown or whatever, what kind of things uh, would be, uh, should a shelter have or shouldn't have? Yeah, facility design is so important. Again, when we talk about how comprehensive shelter medicine is, it's incredible because I mean, most veterinarians are not getting trained on, you know, shelter architecture and cleaning sanitation protocols, like they're trained to treat animals medically. So there's so much more that goes into it, though. And facility design is so important um, because when we go back again to thinking about, well, how do we keep an animal healthy? How do we keep them like behaviorally sound? You know, facility design plays a huge role in that. And particularly with um, you know, individual animal housing, like, is the animal given a chance to hide? Like, is there, you know, does the cat have maybe a box to, you know, it can be as simple as a cardboard box, or does it have potentially a towel over part of its cage? I mean, one of the big movements in cat housing, this is maybe getting a bit technical, but is to give cats two housing units. So in many cases, when you see these metal banks of cages that are like, again, two by two, Big, a little bit bigger than an oven, you know, a microwave cage to actually cut a portal uh, in between those cages that could be closed during times when, you know, shelters need to keep more cats. But generally what we find is when we give cats two, um, two cages and we usually do kind of a resting area in one cage and then uh, like a toileting area in the other, cats stay more healthy um, they're less likely to get sick. They show better, right? Because they're not sleeping right next to their toilet. Um, and so they're more likely to get adopted and shelters are actually more likely to turn animals over. So higher 
you know, live release rate, shorter length of stay. And but shelters freak out at that suggestion because they think caught holes in our cages, like that's gonna, you know, decrease our capacity by 50%. Like, where are we gonna put all the cats? But the data is really clear to show that it actually decreases shelter uh, length of stay and increases adoptions. Like just quantitatively across the board, shelters will adopt up more cats. So, you know, other things to look for, you know, is lighting appropriate? Does it smell nice? I mean, I think this is a big issue is just, you know, is cleaning done by the time that the shelter opens, right? Does the shelter have enough staff to do that? I mean, all of these things. Ventilation. Yeah, How about play, ventilation? Play part. Air ventilation. Air exchange. Ventilation is huge. Sound barriers. You know, we see rooms where like fancy architectural design um, for the dog housing, but like no sound mitigation in these very like tall uh, like ceilings. And it looks architecturally, again, like very beautiful. But what we find is many architects don't have experience, right, with building, uh, you know, dog shelters. And so they often take, um, you know, noise mitigation and sound barriers, you know, for granted. Drainage is another big one, having sloped drains. What do those look like? So there are definitely now contractors that focus on shelters that have a portfolio of, you know, shelter construction projects that they've done. So, yeah, it's definitely worth, you know, shelters reaching out to them beforehand rather than trying to retrofit, you know, sound barriers and all of this after the fact. Well, that's what they usually do. They yeah, that's correct. Yeah. It's usually the latter. But it's up to, I think it's up to the citizens of the, of the town. If they go to the shelter and there's things that they don't like, they should talk to the animal control officer uh, first, be civilized and point things out and maybe uh, get a group of citizens and go to the town council. If, if it smells, if it's, if it's wet and moist and there's yeah. not enough room, they, these things need to be an animal control officer. It's not animal, necessarily animal control officer's fault because they're limited. Exactly. It's, it's really the town's responsibility and that's the community. So I urge my listeners to, you know, to, to do something about it rather than complain about it. This is exactly it because the people that are working in these facilities are incredibly hardworking. They're, their heart is in the right place. They're not making a lot of money. Right. They're doing it generally because they love the animals. They want to take care of them. They want to find them homes. But yet they're given this terrible facility to work with a low budget um, and not enough staff and often staff that, you know, maybe aren't trained. And, and so it's. um, Yeah. You know, again, they might be relying on volunteers or like prison type programs. You know, it's not exactly like the caliber of staffing that you would need. Right. To run the run the program and to run the shelter as effectively as it could. So. Challenging. Yes, it is. This is Let's Talk Animals from Aardvarks to Zebras, Dr. John Hunt, your host. We're talking to Dr. Catherine Pollock about animal shelters and animal shelter medicine, which I'm going to get into right now. And this is WERU in East Orland, Maine. Uh, As a veterinary animal shelter, veterinarian, uh, there are, I could, I I have three or four or five, six, seven, eight different things that you're responsible for as a veterinarian. And can you uh, kind of share with the listeners exactly your responsibilities as a veterinarian? Sure. Yeah. I mean, and certainly it can vary depending on the, the position, but as a general like shelter veterinarian at the shelter, you know, you're responsible for the health and welfare of really every animal that comes in through those doors. And as I mentioned before, you know, it's, it's, more of herd medicine than anything. Um, You know, we want the best care and treatment for individual animals, but the reality is you're also balancing that with a shelter population of 200, 300, 400 animals at times. And so it's it's really challenging to balance, um, you know, doing daily rounds every day. So making sure you put eyes on every animal every day, making sure they have what they need. And also balancing that with, the surgical aspect as well. So generally the veterinarian is responsible not only for keeping the animals healthy, but then also doing all the surgeries. And so you can imagine if it's, if it's a, you know, a high volume facility, this could be 20, 30, 40 procedures, um, not to mention treating then all of the sick animals, right? And, you know, many of the animals that are coming through the doors have unknown medical histories, right? They could be strays, they could be hit by cars. And so, you don't know, have they been vaccinated? Have they not? Are they incubating infectious disease? Are they not? Um, 
And then you're trying to keep them healthy again in potentially a facility that's like not really set up to promote animal health. And so also the role of the veterinarian very much is, you know, preventing infectious disease and managing it when it happens. So when you do have animals with infectious disease, like it can really cause, you know, again, this isn't an animal in a private household who, you know, has a loving owner and there's no other animals near it. I mean, this has a potential to, if you have, let's say a respiratory case, you know, to cause a respiratory outbreak in the entire shelter. And then what does that do? It decreases community reputation. It overwhelms the staff. You know, it just, there's a lot of negative consequences. So yeah, there's a lot. So to answer your question, there's a lot of different things well, that the veterinarian needs to do. Do you do a, a, do you screen, like screen for, you know, do a physical heartworm check, vaccine, stool check? Do you need, do shelter to that? Or is that kind of only at the high end? All shelters should do that. So if they're not doing it, they should do that. They should have every shelter should have a standard intake protocol. Like this is basic. If you're going to shelter animals, every animal needs on intake to get an exam. It needs a vaccine, ideally for Parvo in uh, December, a modified live. Um, Depending on the local ordinance, it should have a rabies vaccine sometime during its day. Deworming, ideally check for heartworm um, at a minimum. Yeah. Uh, And so... That's just, yeah, the basics of, of sheltering. But many shelters don't do that, right? Because they're under strict financial like restrictions. So what's the easiest thing to cut out of the budget? Oh, the, the vaccines. Like, like, or we'll just vaccinate the ones that like we think are going to get a home. Okay, but yeah. that's not how infectious disease works, right? And so then, then it's much more expensive to treat the infectious disease outbreak than it would have been if you had just given the animals vaccines on intake. Or you get a local veterinarian like myself that that does it for free. Oh yeah, that's even better. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think that happens. You heard a lot. it here. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about not making a living, but it doesn't matter. Yeah, yes, these, all, right. poor dogs. all the lives saved. Yeah, are worth, it's worth it. So you're doing pre. You supposed to do pre screening. You, you spay neuter. That's yep. One that that sometimes at on site, right? Yep. They, they have a little hospital there. That's not very common. Not. It depends. I mean, I would say most facilities do nowadays. They oh, have the big, a the bigger facilities. Fee. Yeah. Uh, but even smaller ones, I mean, okay. generally you have, or they might have a contract spay neuter vet that comes and they, you know, it doesn't have to be a large surgical suite. It could be a, you know, a closet that's retrofitted with a table. Um, but yeah, it depends. But all, but some of the, you know, municipal shelters might also have like a voucher program where doctors will, you know, take their animal to get sterilized, spay neutered. But yeah, it, it depends. And also you do, you treat illness and injury, obviously. Um, and yeah, and, and again, this is, this is, it comes down to budget as well, right? Because yep. if you have five hit by car dogs that need orthopedic repairs, broken limbs, you know, all of this, there are some very difficult decisions that need to be made. And I think yeah. more and more shelters are reaching higher and higher life-saving you know, capacity, which is really exciting, you know, but for the smaller shelter, you know, there, there's potentially going to be, yeah, difficult decisions that need to be made about how to best allocate resources. And how would you as a veterinarian trained in animal shelter, uh, help out with the behavioral stuff, behavior entering behavior during and behavior. If they're adopted out, there's three phases there. Can you address those? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, you know, similar to what we talked about, you know, doing a kind of a physical health check, generally animals will also get what we call a behavior assessment. Um, It's not usually done right away on intake because we recognize animals are scared. It's a new environment. So we give them a few days to calm down. And then generally they'll get a behavior assessment and there's many different types out there, but a general screening to pick up on any behavioral issues um, that an adopter might need to know. But one of the real challenges is, you know, keeping the animal behaviorally healthy while it's in the shelter, right? Because shelters are stressful. Um, And so making sure that the animal has what it needs, it has a bed, it has a bone, it, um, you know, has, you know, treats and appropriate diet. And so we try to make that animal stay as comfortable as possible Um, and try to pick up on any behavioral issues, you know, before they happen. So like circling in a cage, what we call stereotypies. Um, you know, chewing on the cage doors, you know, that's a sign of behavioral deterioration. And so we want to make sure that we're picking up on those and making sure that we're mitigating them. I mean, really from a behavioral perspective, the best thing that we can do is get the animal out of the shelter. 
like hands down, try to minimize length of stay. Like I keep saying length of stay is so important. It's like the currency of sheltering, right? Like you want your length of stay to be short so that animals don't suffer from behavioral deterioration, you know, don't have infectious disease illness and get out. Um, so I think then, you know, kind of that, that final stage, there's actually an interesting program and I'm not sure if you've heard of it. It's called meet your match and um, meet your matches. You know, it's not for every shelter because it does take a bit of time to implement, but what it is is every animal on their behavioral assessment gets categorized usually as a different color and then a category. And there's all sorts of fun, like titles that the animal gets like life of the party would be like a cat. That's like really outgoing, you know, or like couch potato would be kind of like the cat's like, nah, you know, <laughs> stay to myself. Um, so, the, so every animal gets a color. Um, and then when the adopter comes in, they fill out a quick questionnaire that says, what's their lifestyle like? Are they active or are they also more of a couch potato variety? And then um, based on that, uh, the shelter can generate, okay, these are the animals. Every purple animal is one that fits your lifestyle. So that way we can try to match animals up with, you know, potential adopters and try to set them up, you know, the best way that we can for success. There's a lot of different ways to do that. That's just one that I always find really cool. So this, we'll use this meets your match example. Uh, you have a, uh, I would say contamination of behavior because you have a, a, a dog that behaves a certain way or a cat, but then the trauma of whatever reasons to go into a shelter. So they were abused, neglected, but they have this personality. Like my dog, Ben, the border collie, he was put in a cage for the first year of his life. That's it. He didn't have any contact with anybody. So then you go into a shelter or even rescue and you give them a couple of days to settle down, but then you have any influences of shelter behavior. So how do you how do you categorize um, an animal like a couch potato or whatever? And and second part of the question is what behaviors are just absolutely no? You you can't adopt this animal out behaviorally. Yeah, I mean, I I would say no behavioral assessment is going to one hundred percent predict you know, with one hundred percent accuracy what the animal's behavior is going to be in the home. Like we try to do it the most comprehensive way. And again, many of these behavioral assessments are very comprehensive. You know, there are 10 to 12 different processes. There's, you know, testing for food aggression. There's dressing up as a stranger. There's opening an umbrella. I mean, all of these different things to try to test to the best of our ability, what this animal is going to act or what the behavior is going to be in that situation. But again, no test is hundred percent predictive. Um, you know, but there are certain red flags, right, that are gen generally no-go. And I would say, you know, food aggression is one where, and again, it also depends, I'll say it also depends on the shelter's capacity for, you know, behavioral intervention and working with these dogs, right? In a, in a very high volume public urban shelter, there's probably not going to be that level of behavioral care for the animals. Um, but some private shelters, you know, San Diego Humane, I can guarantee has a full behavior department that will work with food aggressive dogs, right? And there are protocols for that, or what we call jumpy mouthy dogs. Those are dogs that are like, you know, your big lab is untrained and just you know, in your face. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and so, so yeah, we, you know, have protocols for working with those dogs, you know, but there are certainly kind of hard and fast you know, kind of no goes and those are dogs that, you know, are, have, you know, very severe food aggression that will definitely bite the hand of the person. If you go to take that dog's food away, um, or ha that has a bite history, you know, I mean, many of these animals are confiscated or they're, they're parts of legal cases. Um, and they would be potentially unsafe and a liability for the shelter to rehome should that dog bite, you know, it's a, a child in the home. So I'll say it depends on the resources of the facility as well. And can you work, you know, with some biting situations, if it's fear, if you alleviate the fear, you alleviate the biting, but if it's a dominance aggression, you may not be able to alleviate that. That takes some expertise, like a trained veterinarian, behaviorist. A, a behaviorist, yeah, 100%. And so, you know, you look at shelters like ASPCA, for instance, they have a they have a behaviorist on staff, probably San Diego Humane, I think they have a behaviorist as well, because these are really tricky cases, and particularly when you're talking about liability and whatnot, you know, shelters also want to want to protect themselves from any liability as well. That's tricky. And shelters have become um, a real source of uh, pets because the people 
people think there's they're just a bunch of mutts, but there are a lot of purebreds in shelters, a lot of uh, puppies and kittens available, so they're around, and it's cheaper, a lot cheaper. I mean, some of these purebreds are thousands of dollars. I hear people spending a lot of money, and, and that's fine if that's what they want to do, but uh, animal shelters do have a lot of potential, right? And I think this is a good point. We're back in the day, you know, you didn't have the, the average person didn't think about going to a shelter for getting their next pet because shelters were seen to get as dirty, they're smelly, the animals are sick. Yeah, why would I do that? But that's where there's been this kind of cultural revolution where now shelters are seen as, you know, it varies in each community, but I've seen it places to get a great dog, potentially a purebred dog um, or a puppy. Um, and we want shelters, you know, again, where they are not a policing agency, but they're collaborative. They're offering, well, you know, here's a puppy, but here's, um, you know, puppy resources. Here's training classes. You want to come back Monday night? And we're and if this doesn't work out, like we're here to help mitigate any issues, right? And if it doesn't work out, we'll take that puppy back. You know, we want the best home, you know, the best adopter, um, but to also be understanding that sometimes, you know, things happen, life happens um, to really take more of a, a collaborative approach. But also our listeners should understand that some people have this idea that they can just go to the animal shelter, pick out a dog, and that's it. But a lot of shelters have a lot of paperwork, screening, 24-hour wait period. No, you can't take the dog today. Yep. Uh, just have a couple more minutes. Can you just kind of explain to our listeners to what to expect nowadays for the animal shelter adopting out? Yeah. And so, so what's been interesting is that there has been this kind of evolution where more and more people are turning to adoption to get their new pet. And particularly during the pandemic, I think Google searches for, I want to adopt a dog are up something like 250%, like just crazy during the pandemic. And in many places, I mean, I never thought I'd say, see the day where shelters don't have puppies in some places. I was just in California and um, in San Diego, it was incredible. It was really like it was incredible, like how competitive it was, and the and the prices too. Like I, I just haven't been, you know, I've been in Asia, I think Southeast Asia for so long. I'm used to Southeast Asia prices, <laughs> and we were we were shipping. And the reason I was there is we were shipping some of our dogs from Cambodia, and I was like five hundred dollars for a Cambodian dog. People are driving two three hours from it. Um, but with that being said, you know, in places where there is this demand, um, you know, there, there can be some extensive screening, there can be reference checks, paperwork. And again, that's also because the shelter wants to make sure that the animal is going into a home where, you know, there's the best chance for success. Um, and we don't want people to just kind of buy on site, you know, you should really, this is a decision that, you know, you should consider, um, that you should speak with your family about. Um, and, and ideally there's also some follow-up with the shelter to make sure that things are going well once the dog's in your home. So it's all this pain in the neck stuff and invasive. Some people think it's invasive. That's there, there, there's a reason for it. It's, it's to exactly make a good it. match, make a good match. Uh, we have one minute, actually less, but where do you think um, animal shelter are, are, is there a trend, uh, in the future? What do you think the future is? Yeah. I mean, I think also because not only have we seen increasing pet adoption, but we have trained the public to spay and neuter their animals, right? Like this is the thing you do. And because of that, I mean, I, we're seeing communities again, where there's, like very few animals for adoption um, and transport programs are becoming more popular because, you know, shelters in the Northeast are like desperate for puppies, you know, where Alabama has a surplus. What I do think though, from the pandemic, what we're going to see is shelters taking more of a community-based approach of being more community resource centers, entrusting the public more, you know, that the public can take more responsibility for animals. They can find animals, adoptive homes, um, but really being more of a, a resource rather than, you know, kind of this will take anything, um, you know, to have more responsibility, to place more responsibility um, on members of the community. Very good. We're out of time again. Another hour. It goes so fast. Catherine, you're a wonderful guest. Uh, we'll try to think of another topic for you to come back. Yeah. <laughs> we'll think about no, that. No, I'm sure. I, I have a few thoughts. Good, good. We'll communicate by email. But thank you again, Dr. Catherine Pollock, uh, animal shelter expert, and also in 
in Thailand. Who, she's working diligently of, of helping the people over there. Uh, thank you very much. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. This is Let's Talk Animals from Aardvarks to Zebras, signing off. And remember, enjoy your pet. And don't forget to give them a hug. 